Eric Smith is the Associate Professor of Rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania. He is also the co-founder and co-editor of Free Black Thought. In a Newsweek article, Professor Smith wrote, quote, We hear endlessly about systematic racism, white supremacy, the black-white income gap, and police brutality, unquote. So powerful an ideology has this narrative become, he says, that those of us who pose a counter-narrative, that's black anti-woke writers, for example, frequently find our words being misconstrued in an effort to stanch their impact, unquote. Here's Professor Smith. Professor Eric Smith of York College, what's a professor of rhetoric? A professor of rhetoric is somebody who teaches persuasion, basically, and everything therein, uh, audience consideration, um, context, uh, the values and beliefs uh, of an audience or an environment, taking all those things into consideration uh, when speaking or writing. Uh, there are various definitions of rhetoric, but I still go by the classic Aristotelian one, which is uh, the ability to, in any given situation, discern the available means of persuasion, you know, which is to say that whether you're in this context or this context, you know how to speak your mind and persuade and inform. When did you start wanting to be a professor of rhetoric? I actually went to graduate school to be a professor of American literature, uh, focusing mostly on a, a 19th century nonfiction uh, uh, you know, Emerson, for example, uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, um, things like that, even William James, uh, to a degree. That didn't um, last long because I discovered rhetoric in graduate school. Um, I realized that, you know, oh, this thing about persuasion and discourse and how certain ideologies affect how certain people speak. I, I've been interested in this the whole time. I just didn't realize it existed. Uh, so I got my MA in American Lit, but switched to my PhD in in rhetoric. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Mount Holly, New Jersey. Uh, technically East Hampton, but we share a zip code, and there was nothing in East Hampton at the time, but uh, a few houses and some cows. So I always say uh, Mount Holly. Um, I went to Rancocas Valley Regional High School in Mount Holly. And uh, yeah, it's South Jersey, not North Jersey. Those are two very different states. Explain that. Um, well, South Jersey is why they call it the Garden State. Uh, North Jersey very much is not. Now, I'm not going to say that, you know, North Jersey is an ugly place. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. But I'll put it this way. They're Giants and Jets fans. I'm an Eagles fan. <laughs> you know? What, what, are, what was your family like? Uh, my family was wonderful. Um, it was a very lively group of people that the, the house was a great place to come to and a sad place to leave all right so I, I i really enjoyed and to this day still enjoy uh my family it was a good environment how many kids in the family would your parents do um there were five kids there are five kids in the family i'm second to last um, my mother is uh was a unit coordinator at deborah heart and lung center and um, my father was a Vietnam vet turned postal worker. And um, we were raised middle, lower slash middle 
uh, class. And, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I had a, you know, they gave us a lot of opportunities they didn't have, you know, and to this day, I appreciate that. And it's part of some of the stuff that I, I write. It's part of what motivates me. What were your interests in high school? Um, my interest in high school. Wow. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to write. I liked writing. Uh, it was an escape for me. Um, it was something that I thought I was good at and that I would continue to do in my future. I had no idea what the word rhetoric meant at the time, uh, or anything like that. And I didn't really think I'd be an educator, but I knew I wanted to write. Where'd you go to college? First step. Ursinus College, a small liberal arts college, uh, about 40 minutes north and slightly west of Philadelphia. Why did you pick that? There was a um, college day uh, at my high school. The cafeteria was filled with all these uh, booths, kiosks, if you will. And um, I saw the Ursinus one and made a beeline. There's just something about it. I know that is not, you know an answer becoming of a professor uh, that I intuitively found my college, but that is what happened. I I, I looked at it, I felt good um, from the people talking. Um, my One of the assistant coaches on the football team happened to go there, so that nudged me a little bit as well. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's why I chose it. Did you play sports in either high school or college? Uh, yes, I played um, football, I ran track, I did basketball a little bit. In, uh, in high school um, and in college, I did football. So after, what you what was your major at Ursinus? English. Where'd you get your master's? University of Illinois, Chicago. Why did you go there? Um, well, I wanted to get out of uh, the Philadelphia, New Jersey area for one thing. Um, Chicago is a place I always wanted to uh, uh, visit and check out. Um, I was excited to be in a big city by myself uh, that that's daunting to a lot of people it wasn't to me um it was adventurous and um a professor uh, at ursinus my undergrad at the time uh thought i'd like it you know and there was a professor there who she knew and you know you know how things happen and uh, and I, I i went there i liked it um and i applied and i got in and what was your focus when for your master's degree uh, american lit yeah. Do you have, I, a, um, you have a favorite writer or two? I uh, Yes. Uh, Emerson and Douglas. Ralph Waldo Emerson and Frederick Douglas were my favorites. Um, but, um, you know, you got to, with a master's degree, you got to expand a little bit farther than that. Uh, but those were the ones. In fact, um, Emerson's self-reliance was a big motivator when I was in college as my undergrad. Um, I, I, it resonated with me. And... Um, you know, it led me to read more of his stuff, and it all resonated with me. What was it? Give me some ideas you got from Emerson that uh, about self-reliance. Uh, well, he has a wonderful essay titled "Self-Reliance," and and what he does, and he he goes through life saying, "Here's why we shouldn't have to depend on others too much." Right. We shouldn't, you know, uh, read these authors and abide by them just because they have particular ethos. Right. We have knowledge ourselves. We should live life, you know, get out of the library and go out and live life. In fact, in the American Scholar um, uh, essay, he says just that, um, which uh, Harvard didn't like at the time. He was giving a talk on Harvard about how, you know, college was overrated. 
um, he wasn't invited back. So um, I, I liked his um, grit. I liked his uh, moxie. And I liked what he was saying about self-reliance. And I, I think it's something that, unfortunately, is starting to wane in society today. Why Frederick Douglass? Uh, amazing story. Uh, an escaped slave who became one of the, well, the most famous speaker uh, of the 19th century. Um, I could put arguably in front of that, but uh, no. I mean, if you look at uh, the speaking engagements he had, the, the, the newspaper articles, um, it, it, he was a, a demand, right? Um, people wanted to hear how this black slave escaped and became so eloquent. And, well, he did it because of self-reliance, um, hard work, knowing what he wanted to do and going for it, being pragmatic in nature, right? And, and he admired Emerson for that. So how did you immerse yourself in both authors? How? Um, well, well, you just read them, <laughs> for one thing. You, you dig that deep into uh, what they're talking about, not just uh, you know um, their, their uh, publications, but the history uh, behind their lives and things like that. Um, what's more, they were inspirations. They weren't just writers, you know, who wrote interesting things. They were inspirations for how to, you know, go out into this world and succeed, right? Um, if Frederick Douglass can escape slavery and become the person he was, th there's no excuse for me not achieving my goals, you know? Um, what's more, self-reliance is my favorite, one of my favorite attributes, along with individuality. Um, two things that Emerson embodied. So, uh, so yeah. But, but as you know, right over here in Anacostia is the Frederick Douglass house. Mm -hmm. And then with Emerson, it's up there in Concord, Massachusetts, mm -hmm. right up there on Authors Road. Did you ever go to either place? And they came from vastly different yeah. origins. I haven't. I haven't gone. Again, uh, I found rhetoric and said, I'll do that stuff later. You know, so, yeah. After Masters, where did you get your Ph.D.? I stuck around. I, I stayed at University of Illinois, Chicago. And your dissertation was about what? Um, my dissertation was called A Rhetoric of Mythic Proportions. It talked about um, how Dionysus and Hermes uh, represented uh, certain kinds of uh, rhetorical theory and practice. And it also talked about it, mostly Hermes uh, and other trickster figures, Loki, Esu, Elegua. Um, uh, you know, there are there's a trickster figure in every culture, if you go back far enough. And they all represent language, communication, and, and the um, nebulous nature of language, how one term can mean so many different things uh, to other people. Uh, language manipulation, uh, persuasion, right? So these were literally gods of rhetoric. So I wanted to uh, dive into that, and that's my, but that was my dissertation. How long have you been at York College, and what's it like? Um, it's been 10 years. Uh, exactly. This is the best place I've ever worked um, regarding, you know, the faculty, uh, uh, the staff, the my, my peers here. I I look forward to uh, meetings with them. Uh, it's 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 a great place. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Going to switch now to a headline that was actually in one of the newspapers this morning. Harvard is named worst school for free speech scoring zero out of a possible 100 are you aware of this no i am not what what paper is that 
Well, it was published by the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, they say um, it released its annual college free speech rankings today, which dubbed the state of free speech at the Ivy League school abysmal. When you hear that, you know, I'm sure you know Harvard and all that. Yeah. Compared to what you're getting uh, at, at your college, does that surprise you? It doesn't surprise me. Um, unfortunately, uh, a lot of the Ivies are having uh, issues with free speech these days. What's more, um, if if fire is presenting it, there's there's some sense to it. I believe. I think they do good work. Um, so. I don't know exactly the ins and outs of what's going on at Harvard, so I can't really speak to it in depth. But I do know that, you know, uh, professors have been punished for saying certain things that people didn't like. Anybody ever punished at York College for that? Uh, Not that I know of. But you did say somewhere that you were criticized by your dean um, at Um, at one point? uh, Yes, yes. But that... uh, that's that happened a few years ago. Um, I don't think it's a, a, a matter worth talking about. Um, the the true ostracization uh, came from my field at large, and and um, the leaders in the field of uh, rhetorical studies. Uh, that's where the vitriol is really coming from. So, why did you found or co-find Free Black Thought, and what is it? Um. Free Black Thought is a nonprofit focused on um, displaying viewpoint diversity within Black America. There's this idea that Black people, you know, think alike. They uh, they agree on certain interpretations. They agree on certain goals, things like that. Uh, they share the same exact values, attitudes, and beliefs, and that is not true. Um, so, Free Black Thought is out there to dispel that myth and provide a voice for um, black writers and poets and artists who aren't represented in mainstream media. Um, There's a journal of Free Black Thought. There's a compendium, uh, a robust bibliography of uh, voices you may not know of. Um, And uh, there's a new podcast uh, that's been about two months old now, and uh, it's going well. Why did you start it? How did you start it? Um, Well, why I started it... um, I started it because of a, there was an incident in 2019 at a conference. Um, I listened to a talk that I thought was a bit off, uh, to put it lightly. Um, The speaker was basically saying it was inherently racist to expect standardized English from black students. Um, And I uh, went on a now defunct listserv and asked you, is this really the best advice for professors and best representation for uh, minority students? You know, um, it was a long email. And uh, the response to that was not very good. Um, The response to that was that basically I wasn't a um, real authentic black person. And I was uh, my I had a colonized mind and I wasn't as enlightened as everybody else about uh, race relations in America and things like that. And it, it got pretty vicious, uh, spilled over to social media. Um, and that motivated me uh, to focus on the rhetorics of anti-racism and and um, to fight race essentialism 
um, and and to co-found Free Black Thought. Um, it it wasn't my idea. I I found people. They found me and told me what they were doing. And I said, you know what? Yeah, let let me uh, be a part of this. Let's see how it how it goes. And uh, so far, so good. Are you? Uh criticized by your colleagues there at York College or others for doing something like this? Um, not to my face. Um, I, I, I know for a fact that there are certain uh, people out there who who don't agree with me. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it's interesting when white people tell me I'm not being black correctly. Um, and that's uh, always fun. But uh, for the most part, I am I am pretty comfortable here. What what what's your experience in white people telling you that you're not you don't have the right excuse the expression or rhetoric? Mm-hmm. Um, well, um, I've been accused of white supremacy um, because I value things like self reliance, individualism. Um, I value uh, learning as many dialects as you can, especially the one that's most prominent in civic and professional spaces. Um, because of that, I am mired in "quote unquote" white ways of knowing, and therefore a danger to the black community. And when white people tell me that, it's really, really disquieting um, and and infuriating. If I'm to be honest, uh, what do you say back to them? And do you say anything back to them to their face? Um, well, it hasn't really happened to my face. It's happened on social media. Um, I don't I don't I'm not entirely sure it would happen to my face uh, anytime soon. Um, But I I remind people of the hypocrisy coming from um, a lot of contemporary anti-racist scholars, uh, activists, what have you. Um, They insist that we should believe black voices, but not mine. Right. Uh, They insist that we should embrace the lived experiences of black people, but not mine. Um, and so I point out that hypocrisy, and they typically have nothing to say. You, I've seen a lot of your work, and, and I'm just going to throw uh, phrases at you and have you de- define them and why you, why you want to comment on them. One of them is systemic racism. What is systemic racism from your point of view? Systemic racism is the idea that um, racism is, they, they say, baked in to um, American society and American institutions. Um, and the idea is that these institutions are built with the oppression of minorities in mind, right? So uh, certain policies are made so that white people um, uh, maintain superiority, right? And every disparity uh, in in uh, race relations is because of this systemic racism, right? Every problem is because of this systemic racism, and nothing else, right? Um, and and that that's the idea. How often do you see that actually happening, or do you? Um, I don't typically see it actually happening, but that's the nature of it. If you ask people who believe in it, it's supposed to be hidden. It's insidious. It's, 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 it's something that you have to you know, look for. And if you don't see it, then you are suffering from false consciousness. You have a quote-unquote colonized mind. Um, and the people who are 
not mired in in that kind of uh, colonial uh, mindset are the ones who really see it and should be the leaders. That's the idea. What were your parents' attitudes about this? And and what's their reaction to your success? My parents, uh, we didn't really talk about uh, politics, race relations, social political issues, uh, what have you. Um, it was really a fun place to be. Um, I, I, we we didn't have those kind of conversations at the dinner table. Um, they they didn't come up. Um, these are things that I would uh, discover as I went into college and went into graduate school and then to the academy. Uh, so I didn't grow up um, with with this as a normal part of my household. What about your siblings? Uh, neither did I. What, any feedback from them now that you're doing what you're doing? Um, no, um, not, not nothing negative. You know, um, they they know I I have my reasons, I suppose. Uh, but again, it's 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 something that I do, and you know, it's talked about for a little bit, and then we move on. You know, it's not really a big deal uh, in my household. Um, Thanksgiving is about Thanksgiving, not about you know uh, uh, these these issues. Christmas is the same. You know, uh, it, it's it's not a it's not a big topic of conversation among us. Another phrase on the list, and we hear this a lot, is white supremacy. What does yes. that mean to you? Um, white supremacy is the act of maintaining supremacy by people of. Uh, European ancestry. Um, it is aligned with Enlightenment values uh, like self-reliance, individualism, uh, primacy of reason, um, equality before the law. Um, all these things are derived from people who derive from Europe, uh, aka white people, and therefore because of that connection, um, they are already considered inherently racist. Um, people go as far as to say that these things are actually worsening racism because they help hide it. So, do you think there is such a thing as white supremacy? Uh, no. Why not? So many people do. Um, I think that's interesting. I think a lot of people, um, especially people of um, African American or, or Latino minority um, uh, scholars, students, what have you, uh, the the ones that are most adamant about white supremacy uh, are the ones that tend to have the least interaction with white people. Um, they tend to be people who um, grew up in predominantly black or predominantly Latino uh, areas and didn't really um, meet and interact with white people until later on in their lives. Um, I grew up uh, in a predominantly white uh, area and um, went to a very diverse school uh, with many white people as black people. And, and, and you know, it was, uh, I liked it. I was proud of it for that, right? Um, so I have this different relationship than they do. So there, there's a lot of speculation going on, a lot of fear based on things they've heard and not experienced. And I've been experiencing this since kindergarten. So um, actually knowing the terrain makes you less fearful of the terrain. And I, I think that's what's going on. I, I, at a young age, I realized that white supremacy wasn't really, you know, legitimate. You know, I, I'd be sitting in class and I look to my left and the white kid to my left is eating paste. 
and I say, okay, he's superior to me. <laughs> this, this is this is clearly a myth. That must you have know, really so, happened. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, it, a lot of things happened to, to make me realize that white supremacy isn't, you know, um, the, the the boogeyman, the specter that a lot of people say it is. Have you ever been treated differently, in your opinion, by white people? Um, because yeah, definitely. And how do you see it? Uh, well, it depends on the context. Uh, sometimes people treat me, you know, um, especially uh, kindly uh, because they think they feel like they need to, or or they're cruel because they um, have ideas about my competence or or uh, my my. Um, you know, intelligence or, or something like that. I, I've had it from both sides. How big a problem is this whole subject of race in the United States right now? Um, it's it's bigger than it has been in a while um, because it is uh, at the forefront of, it seems to be at the forefront of everything we're doing, um, especially uh, from an institutional standpoint. A lot of places are, you know, um, doing DEI trainings and things like that, implicit bias trainings, uh, especially after uh, George Floyd, but even before that, um, with Trayvon Martin and, and, and other unfortunate situations being seen, uh, being heard, and the reactions uh, to those things, uh, it is definitely at the forefront of uh, the American psyche right now. And you know, I, I understand that. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be that way, but I'm not a big fan of how it's being addressed typically. What was your reaction when George Floyd was killed? Oh, it was anger, you know, um, that this person was killed unnecessarily, you know, and, and we have footage to see that he was killed unnecessarily. Um, and, you know, it the fact that it was a white cop and, and a, a, a black uh, person obviously exacerbated uh, a lot of emotions across the nation, across the world, actually. You know, so um, I was in line with that. Uh, I was very angry about it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that we can agree on a problem, but disagree on the solutions. Right. And, and that's that's uh, the main source of contention in my life right now. You, you mentioned, uh, well, you didn't mention that you've written about Black Lives Matter. What do you think of that whole concept? Um, I love the term. <laughs> you know, I, I like to think I matter. Um, but uh, the organization uh, has some flaws, as, uh, as most people are starting to realize. Um, forget about the, um, the financial issues uh, they're in. They were coming from a particular ideology that I think... Um, is not conducive to improving race relations. Um, and that ideology is based in, in Marxist thought, uh, often called uh, critical theory uh, or critical social theory. And it it basically takes Marx and instead of proletariat bourgeoisie, it's minority white people. And they project that onto society and and move from there. So everything's based on on that idea, and I, I think that is uh, profoundly flawed. <clears throat> Excuse me. Go, go back again to, to your upbringing and your schooling and all that. What other reasons do you think you don't think like? I don't even know if it's the majority of black people, but you don't think like a lot of the intellectuals that we hear in our society. Um, well, um, we. 
I don't think like a lot of intellectuals that are heard. You're right uh, about that, uh, which is why, you know, I co-founded Free Black Thought um, to kind of combat that and give a voice to those other um, uh, black scholars, black people in general. Um, A lot of people, a lot of black people feel like me. Um, They don't speak up because it doesn't seem to be in their best interest. Excuse me. It doesn't seem to be in their best interest. Um, you know, they they like their jobs. Uh, they like being a part of a you know community, whatever it is, and they don't want to rock the boat. But they understand the flaws in the logic of um, organizations like BLM. DEI, you mentioned mm-hmm. diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes. Where did that come from, and is it working? Well, the terms, you know, uh, came from the civil rights movement um, in the 60s. And those terms, diversity, you know, um, you know, various cultures um, working together, right? Um, Equity, um, having, giving the same opportunities to people, right? Having them open to people anyway, not um, making a concerted effort to block them from those opportunities and inclusion, making sure people feel well included. Like this is their home too, right? Those uh, ideas are derived from uh, the, the civil rights era. However, the definitions we have now are derived from a critical social justice um, mindset, and those terms have changed. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't know that they've changed. So when they see a black person against DEI, you know they're they're confused. Right, um, they don't really understand what's happening here, and they think I'm some kind of uh, despicable person. But the case uh, really is that these terms don't mean what they used to mean. Uh, diversity means, you know, um, diversity of, you know, bodies, but not viewpoint, right? And and it typically means pushing uh, the white aside because they've had they've had their time, right? And now we're going to focus on minorities equity means equality of oppor- of outcome rather than equality of opportunity so instead of uh opening the door for everybody to go and and, and get these um resources they're just saying you know what we're just going to make sure that you all have these same outcomes and inclusion is basically tantamount to censorship you know you can't say anything that will offend uh, a uh, a minority of some sort. They're called microaggressions. You know, so um, if you ask somebody where uh, he or she is from, that is considered inherently racist, uh, whether consciously or unconsciously. Uh, so these things are not quite what they used to be, and it that makes all the difference because that turns into the redefinition of other terms um, like uh, racism. For example, um, that can only be a white person discriminating against a black person, regardless of the white person's socioeconomic status or the black person's socioeconomic status or the white person's ethos or the black person's ethos, just period. You know, um, you know, this racism can only be done by white people. If I am um, discriminatory against people because of their white skin, that's just discrimination. That's just prejudice. Right. Racism is something different. Most Americans don't know that. Yet they're, the DEI officials in their uh, workplace, in their school, or something like that, are abiding by those 
those definitions, which is why part of the reason why they're getting away with it. You said something I want to follow up on because uh, as a white guy that's been asking people where they're from for the last 60 years in interviews, is that a, a tip-off to people that I'm a racist? To some people, yeah. Why? Yes, it is. Um, because there is this idea that you're asking for racist reasons. Now, let me start with um, some of the tenets of critical social justice, um, which is an ideology that underlies uh, a much of the, um, you know, the the contemporary anti-racist act activism and and, and, and teaching. Critical social justice has uh, the primary tenet that you know, don't ask whether racism happened, ask how it manifested in this situation, which is to say it's always going on. If you think that might have been racist, it, it was racist, right? And anybody who tries to explain himself is just being defensive and trying to maintain white supremacy. Or if I try to explain myself, it's because I've been duped, you know, and I have a, my mind's been colonized by, by white people, right? Um, so that's the idea. So when you ask a question like, where are you from? The interpretation is, oh, you don't think I should be American? You know, you think I'm from someplace else? Now, that does get annoying. You know, um, <laughs> if you're Asian and you from you're from Brooklyn and you've been there for 100 years, somebody said, hey, where are you from? Um, and, you know, that's that's kind of annoying. Yes. And, and you can say, you can address it then by saying, I've, you know, I and other people of my race have been here for quite some time, by the way. Um, it, it doesn't have to become a quote-unquote microaggression. What's more, microaggressions also imply that people of a certain race all think the same. That's the race essentialism that free black thought is trying to combat. Um, so to say that um, asking where you're from is a microaggression implies that all black people think it's a, a microaggression. So don't say it. I don't. So I, I won't react um, negatively uh, to that statement. Maybe somebody will, sure. But that doesn't mean that I will as well because we share a skin color, right? So there's that race essentialism again. So there's a little bit off the topic of what we're talking about, but what's your reaction when you watch the media treatment of Clarence Thomas? Uh, well... I think um, when Clarence Thomas comes up, uh, it kind of gives a lot of people, including white people, a pass to uh, say very racist things. Because, oh, well, it's Clarence Thomas. Black people hate him, too. Um, but again, that's race essentialism. Uh, not all black people hate him. I don't hate the man. I don't agree with everything he does, for sure. I mean, that's for sure. Um, but that has nothing to do with his race. When, when another, when a white judge does something, um, we talk about that person's personality, thought process. When Clarence Thomas does something, we talk about his race. And I don't know why we can't just talk about what he said and not who he is. That is an inherently ad hominem fallacy being perpetrated by people who should know better, including people in rhetorical studies. Why do they do that then? What's, what's their motivation? Um, well, it's their motivation is the narrative that derives from critical social justice, which is, you know, the, the world is stacked against us. All right. Um, you know, uh, white supremacy is the main point of everything. Right. Uh, so if this uh, black person does something, we can say, well, this, this, this is not a real black person. Look, America, this is not a real black person. We're real black people. 
Um, a real black person wouldn't say this. He wouldn't make these decisions. He wouldn't have uh, these ideas. Um, and, and if he does say that certain things that we don't like, it's probably because he's trying to please white people. So it, it goes into the whole uh, um, uh, victim oppressed uh, or victim oppressor uh, kind of uh, narrative. There's another professor uh in this country that's recently had a tremendous amount of success. I'm sure you know who Ibram X. Kendi is. Yes. At Boston. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen the uh, the latest numbers, but he sold, I think, at least two million copies of uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Mm-hmm. Give, give us some, you know, tell us what that's all about and why did he sell so many copies right after the George, George Floyd uh, murder? Well, um, the George Floyd murder was a chirotic moment uh, for such books. Uh, this th- goes for Robert D'Angelo's work as well. And what I mean by chirotic is it was the perfect window of opportunity. Um, the the time, the the subject matter, um, the exigencies of police brutality, all those things aligned in a way um, that you know uh, made people look at books like Kendi's as this, you know, a, a solution or a guide to finding a solution. Um, the book is mostly, well, it's, it's substantially memoir, um, and it's uh, substantially just a kind of riffing on on what we need to do as a country to move forward productively and anti-racially uh, or racistly. I don't even know how to <laughs> um, render that term, um, but um, in an anti-racist manner. Right. Um, so, unfortunately, there's not a lot of, you know, uh, solid research and reasoning going on there. Um, it's very, pardon the pun, black and white thinking. Um, either this or that. There's no nuance uh, going on there. So, uh, Kendi's main thesis, um, part of his main thesis, is that every every problem, every disparity uh, that black people have is because of some racist policy, right? Um, which isn't the case if you pay attention. You know, there are other factors going on, and it really depends on the particular black person or black family, uh, black neighborhood, uh, what have you. But, but uh, that's simply, it, it's not that straightforward. There's a lot going into this. Um, but he says that if you don't abide by this, you're basically saying those dis- disparities are because black people are inferior. And um, so he has to, because that's such a bad conclusion, we have to go with this um, when it's not that cut and dry. I've seen some mention of this, not necessarily from you, but the difference between an anti-racist and a non-racist. Yes. And a non-racist is somebody who isn't being racist but he or she is letting racism happen around they're not really doing anything to get rid of it systemically an anti-racist is somebody who you know tries to get rid of it systemically uh through policies and things like that they're actually pushing back there's no neutrality in the situation right um and and, and i'm not i'm not 100 angry at kendi for that kind of statement it aligns with the uh concept that silence is consent Right. If something wrong is happening and you stay silent, you're basically saying it's OK. Um, so it's it's extended from that kind of mindset. So I, I'm not 100 percent angry with him uh, about that. Um, but the, the the nature of anti-racism 
Uh, and the idea that because there is a disparity or because there is a problem in a black community, it has to be uh, because of some kind of racist, uh, systemically racist situation. I, I think that's short-sighted. His book's called How to Be an Anti-Racist. Your book is called A Critique of Anti-Racism in Rhetoric and Composition. Yes. When you put your book out, did the media pay any attention to it? Um, it didn't seem like that. It didn't seem like that, right? No. Why not? I don't what's think... the difference between those two I, books? I, oh, uh, oh, what's the difference between the two books? One is... Um, more aligned. I don't know if um, Kendi would embrace critical social justice as his uh, go-to ideology, but it's more aligned with the oppressor-oppressed kind of situation. Um, my book um, basically says that what's going on in my field um, in the name of empowering students is actually disempowering them. It's uh, incentivizing um, negative emotionality. Um, a negative outlook. It's incentivizing critical social justice as the lens through which we see the world. And that's not, um, to me, an accurate way of looking at the world. And that's what I write about. Your students ever confront you uh, in the classroom having opposite views from yours? Um, no. No. What? I mean, they may bring something up, but there's no, I mean, there's no contention behind it. Do you get any sense of what professors across the higher education business are teaching when it comes to racism in most schools? I'm not in every classroom, uh, so I, I, I don't really know. Um, as far as uh, my field is concerned, the the voices, the loudest voices are, are speaking about uh, a kind of um, critical social justice pedagogy um, based in the transformation of society. Uh, so you know, you don't just have a writing class, you have a writing for social justice class. You're not calling it that, but that's what it is, right? Um, there are professors who will voice that their their main goal in teaching is to transform society, uh, even if they have to use their students to do so. Um, and, and there's an inherent contradiction that they understand and embrace, um, that if you're educating students, you're educating them for happiness and success and fulfillment in this society, right? But if you're trying to transform the society, that goes against uh, the mission of education. Uh, so they they basically say things like, uh, if I if I uh, let this student learn or, or uh, appreciate or think that standard English is the way uh, he needs to go in a certain situation, uh, then what I'm doing is perpetuating the status quo, right? And, and therefore, you know, I, I need to combat that, right? Um, so those are the issues I see in my field anyway. From what I hear, um, is going on in other fields as well. What do you say basically about the way the national media treats this issue? Are we getting a balance? No, we're not getting a balance, especially from the fact that um, everybody who's considered against this contemporary social justice form of uh anti-racism is a right-wing conservative uh you know of european descent and that is far from the truth there are many people on the left of various colors who are also upset about this um some of them are voicing it most of them are not because they want to maintain their jobs and they don't want to be ostracized um but that's uh if you if you listen to the media is you know every black person's for it every white person's against it and that is not the case
Where does this come from? That's a good question. Um, you know, it, it's I, I can keep saying it comes from uh, you know critical social justice uh, um, ideology and things like that, but it also it also comes from uh, policies that were meant to you know um, level the playing field. Um, and the problem is people interpret these policies differently. Let's let's talk about diversifying a workplace. Um, okay, so how do you do that? Well, you just make sure that. Um, the black people are not discriminated against because they're black and have um, access to resources that everybody else has, right? But that can be interpreted as, let's do a quota system, right? Um, and let's do that quota system. Let's find people, um, you know, who can lead this initiative. And the people with the loudest voices are the ones talking about, you know, um, the fact that racism or race yeah, racism can only be done by white people and not by black people, and that uh, microaggressions are microaggressions are a thing, and, and, and things like that. So, it it also comes from particular interpretations of uh, policy, and to come to their defense, some of these policies are kind of ambiguous. Where did the when, when did the microaggression term come into um, the discussion? Uh, Daryl Sue. Uh, um, if I'm not mistaken, in the 70s, uh, coined the term. Um, don't quote me on that. Um, but it 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 became kind of mainstream, if you will, in the last 10 or 15 years, uh, mainly because of the chirotic moment of you know, people seeing police brutality online through social media, uh, through somebody's camera, um, camera phone or, or something like that. Um, and like other things, uh, that w- had the opportunity to come in and really, really occupy people's minds and uh, become one of the talking points of um, contemporary anti-racist activists, right? This concept of microaggressions. You you think that was a neutral statement, but it wasn't, you know? And so- sometimes it isn't, but we also aren't psychic. We can't tell what's going on in somebody's head. and if you're not psychic um, and you uh, appreciate individuality, then microaggressions, that whole concept falls apart. The, and I'm, I'm just going to say that you can uh, obviously disagree with it, but <clears throat> somebody like you, black person who sounds to some people like a conservative and therefore mm-hmm. attracting white conservatives and white conservative money, What's your reaction when you hear that and that connection with your website or whatever you're doing and your writing? Um, it's interesting that people think I sound like a conservative for abiding by the classical liberal values that King wanted to embrace as a black person, Martin Luther King. The issue with um, civil rights and Martin Luther King's uh, way of going about things was that the problem wasn't classical liberal values like uh, individuality, freedom of speech, uh, equality before the law. The problem was that black people weren't allowed to enjoy those things. So he wanted to give access of of those things to black people. And um, that's something I think is a worthwhile goal. These days, um, anti-racism means you're demonizing classical liberal values like that. They're part of the problem. They're helping people hide white supremacy. And they do nothing to uplift uh, black people. That's the idea. I I disagree with that. Um, So if 
liking individuality and free speech and the primacy of reason and uh, and uh, you know free markets and things like that makes me conservative that's very strange because there are white people who agree with that who aren't being called conservatives they're still allowed to be liberals why i don't know if you still are but you became associated with the cato uh institute what what yes. what's that connection and that's a libertarian group yes it is um i'm a research fellow for the cato institute um and a lot of what i do aligns with libertarian uh, values. Now, I have yet to slap that label on, um, but I embrace classical liberal values the way Cato tends to. Um, I, I see it as something that should be uh, the goal uh, for every American citizen. Um, I think that classical liberalism is social justice if you do it correctly, right? If you allow uh, everybody to have, you know, um, access to, to be equal uh, before the law, if you allow people to uh, exercise their right to free speech and free association and and, and things like that, um, it's just it's, it's allowing that for everybody. Um, to me, that is social justice, and um, Cato aligns with that, and that's why I think it's a good fit. What, what do you think of Barack Obama? I like Barack Obama. What did you think of his presidency? Um, I. You know, I, I, I think he was a Democratic president. You know, um, I don't think he did anything incredibly awful. I don't think he did anything incredibly great. Um, I, I do think he, I think people who call him a bad president are wrong. Uh, I, I, no president is perfect. Um, but uh, I, I, was, I was fine with his presidency. What did you think of his rhetoric? Um, well, I did co-edit a book uh, with Matthew Abraham um, on the making of Barack Obama, and I contribute, uh, along with co-writing the introduction, I contribute a chapter on his uh, A More Perfect Union speech. Um, so what I pointed out in that speech was, well, Kairos, I mentioned that before, um, the window of opportunity, the uh, perfect time and place to say something. When the Jeremiah Wright thing happened, um, when he denounced America in church, in a church that Obama attended, that was his opportunity to talk about the things he wanted to talk about regarding race. If he did it before that, he would have been harping on racism, quote unquote, right? He would have been, oh, here's the race card again. But once that happened, they gave him the opportunity to say, okay, I have to do this because of that, right? So that was a chirotic moment that he kind of waited for. You know, I don't know if he was trying to wait for it, but uh, that happened for him. And so I write about the um, the importance of Kairos, uh, finding a rhetorical window of opportunity uh, in that speech. So um, I think he's rhetorically savvy in that sense anyway. What do you think of Al Sharpton and, um, his, and his rhetoric? Um, well, I haven't listened to Al in a while. I, I, from what people have told me, he's uh, a little less adamant than he was uh, when I was growing up in the um, in the eighties and nineties. Um, but uh, he seemed like, uh, and I don't, I don't know the person again. I don't. Uh, I'm not really a Sharpton scholar or anything like that. Um, but he had a lot of fire behind him, and he was doing his best to be a leader. For Black America now, sometimes what he called racist, I didn't think was racist. You know, I can't recall any situations right now, but I remember thinking, 
really, man? You know, um, but I don't know what he's doing lately. So, do you have children? No. If you did have children, what would you do with raising them compared to the way you were raised? Would there be any difference? And would you talk race with them? Um, well, well, I would raise them similarly in that, uh, you know, an unconditional love. You know, um, if I came home with a C, I wasn't, you know, ostracized, right? Not that I came home with Cs, mind you. Um, but, you know, I could do that and not be shamed uh, by my parents. I would do the same uh, with my students. I would, um, my, my students, I don't have kids, so I have to say students. Um, my uh, hypothetical kids. Um, I would talk about race, um, but I, I talk about it in a way that wasn't divisive, um, that that um, didn't encourage them to uh, hate or be suspicious of somebody uh, because of his skin color, right? I, I, I wouldn't do that. I would let them know, you know, uh, about the history of this country, um, about the things that have gone on. And, and how that may or may not affect the present. Yeah, so I would I would talk to them about these things, but um, I wouldn't do it in the way that uh, we're seeing uh, in, in higher education and professional cultures and politics, what have you. What do you see in the rhetoric about police? Um, uh, the rhetoric about police um, is... You know, understandable, given the social truth behind uh, uh, police brutality. And that, what, what I mean by social truth is that there is this narrative about what's going on, and then there's what's going on. There's the numbers. Um, the number of unarmed black people killed by police um, is under 20, um, with the average, under, under 20, not 20,000. Um, under 20, yet if you ask the typical person, it's in the thousands, right? Um, now, it doesn't mean there's no problem, right? But uh, the, the the problem is is uh, kind of um, it's kind of hyperbolic uh, in, in a sense. Um, so I'm not saying there aren't problems with uh, between uh, police and their communities, um, but if we don't look at things accurately, we can't solve them accurately. How has rhetoric about race changed in your lifetime? Uh, yeah, it has definitely changed. Uh, for example, you know, um, the idea of, you've heard this term uppity Negro, right? That is somebody, a, a, a black person who dares to think he's equal to a white person. He speaks uh, in certain ways, he uh, has certain values, he does a certain job and things like that. And he was called uppity um if he has a command of standardized english he was called uppity now today um if somebody has a, a, a black person has a command of standardized english white and black people are calling him uh you know uh, a white supremacist literally um they're called this they're saying he has a colonized mind and things like that so you know when a white person calls somebody uppity now other black people stand up and applaud that's the difference uh, between then and now, um, the uh, the basis of what we're doing has changed. Uh, it's gone from we should be included in America to down with America uh, because it's inherently racist. And the rhetoric 
derives from that. Can't uh, let you go until I ask you about one of the more controversial subjects. You, you've talked around it, but not, not the exact phrase. Critical race theory and mm-hmm. the teaching of critical race theory in schools. Is it being done from what you know? And what does it really mean? Um, it's being done in praxis. Uh, so nobody's reading, uh, you know, um, Derek Bell or Kimberly Crenshaw or, or, or anyone like that, um, but their teachers have. Um, and they incorporate that into their pedagogy. Now, I think uh, using the term uh, critical race theory is not 100% accurate. I say critical social justice because there are certain um, things about original critical race theory that makes sense. Intersectionality is a thing. I'm not just a black person. I'm a black, male, straight, you know, middle class, you know, all these things intersect to make up who I am. And one would do well to consider those things uh, if if one can. So I I understand that idea, but it's been demonized. Now it's turned into the person with the most downtrodden intersections, right, is the person who's allowed to speak the most, the person with the most, um, quote unquote, privileged intersections needs to shut up and listen. And um, I think that's a bastardization of what uh, critical race theory uh, could be. Now, that doesn't mean it's perfect. Um, you know, there there are aspects of it uh, that I think are problematic, but um, there's enough of it. It's, it's a nuanced enough thing that I don't like. You know, um, attributing all this you know vitriol and and uh, and, and drama to that. I, I say critical social justice more accurately. Did you read the New York Times article uh, about the 1619 Project? And if you did, what was your reaction to it? Um, I did read it. And um, some of the essays were fine and others uh, were just not accurate. And, um, you know, they were abided by social truth. Uh, What I mentioned before, the the, uh, ideas that derive from a particular narrative about what's going on and not what's really going on. Um, a lot of the uh, historical facts were just wrong. Uh, they were flawed. And, and the people who published that uh, knew it was wrong. They were told it was wrong by other uh, historians, um, black and white, and they didn't listen. Um, so uh, initially that was clear. I think they went back and cleaned some things up. Uh, but, but yeah, that is, a, that is a document that in a substan- substantial way abides by the narrative and not the facts. So what is Eric Smith's goal from here on out? What do you want to accomplish? And tell us how you can, if somebody's interested in free black thought, where do you find it? Um, well, what I'm interested in, I'm interested in you know, combating race essentialism, uh, the idea that there is a certain authentic way of being black, for example. Uh, I don't believe that. I think there are 40 million black people and there are 40 million different ways to be black. Uh, that, that's how I, I approach that idea. Um, I'm also about uh, keeping uh, critical social justice pedagogy from devolving my field in particular, I think a lot of professors, as I said before, are more geared towards transforming society and less towards educating our students to be happy and successful and have some agency in society, right? 
I also don't think everything is about racism. Um, group consciousness basically says, race consciousness basically says, uh, you know, every problem my group has is because of that other group, you know, and I, I think that is uh, egregious, uh, an egregious um, interpretation of what's going on. Uh, so I do want to combat that. Uh, I also want to save my field. I said that earlier, but um, I'm uh, working on a project with other scholars um, to have an alternative for rhetorical education, um, one that does focus on, you know, the particular context of Western civilization, but America uh, more specifically, um, as a pluralistic uh, society of free speech um, and, and a civil society where we can associate as we please. Um, you cannot sell your ideas in the marketplace of ideas if you're not rhetorically savvy. Um, so I, I want to uh, get back to basics when it comes to rhetorical education. So I'm working on a project now to give people that that opportunity um, and uh, to not be mired in, you know, um, critical social justice pedagogy and things like that. So Free Black Thought, where can people go? And if they want to write something for it, how's that? How do you do that? Um, uh, yes, you can go to... Uh, www.freeblackthought.com we also have a Twitter presence um, and uh, there is a way to submit uh, to the uh, editors um, it's a you know FBT uh, uh, email right um, and uh, the editors there I, I stepped away from all that stuff uh, because I'm too busy doing other things the incredible job the editors are doing uh, at Free Black Thought uh, needs to be mentioned. I, I need to shout that out, uh, that they're doing such a great job with this and staying on top of the essays. We get so many essays. You know, uh, so many people are like, oh, okay, well, th the other people uh, will never publish this because they feel like they'll get in trouble. You know, uh, this place will publish this. This is an outlet. You know, so uh, so that's uh, that's something I'm very proud of. Eric Smith, professor of rhetoric at York College. Pennsylvania, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.